Good morning, everyone. I want to thank our sponsors this morning. Our Parsha show this morning is sponsored by Harriet. I guess only known by Harriet. In memory of her beloved parents, Chaya Hinda and Svi Aryeh, whose neshamos should have an aliyah. Okay. It's great to be back together after a couple weeks off. And to pick up with Parshas Mishpatim. We'll do our usual overview of the Parsha, then we'll delve into a specific section. Class will be a little bit abbreviated this morning, because I have to run out to an event. But we'll see how far as we get. Mishpatim begins not with Mishpatim. The Parsha should actually not be known as Parshas Mishpatim. What should it be known as? Parshas Ve'elaha Mishpatim. The Vav at the beginning of our Parsha is very significant. And these are the laws that Moshe is to place before the Jewish people. Why is that Vav significant? It's known as a Vav HaChibur. It is a uniting, a linking Vav. What is it linking? Our Parsha with? Last week's Parsha. The opening Rashi. If you begin a sentence by saying, Ela, these. So what you're saying is these supplant these, replace those. What I'm telling you now supersedes what I told you yesterday. Whatever is the most recent is the most, has the most authority. Like in learning, you say, the latter opinion who was familiar and aware of all the earlier ones is more authoritative. But it says Rashi, here it doesn't say, these, in an effort to replace the earlier ones. What does it say? The Mosif al Harishonim. The Vav, the Vav HaChibur that's uniting, that's connecting to what comes earlier is telling us that what I'm about to tell you now is not at the expense of, it's not replacing what I told you earlier. I'm adding to what I told you earlier. What, did, what are we adding? Says Rashi. Maharishonim misinai, afelu misinai. Just as the first, what were the first? What's it talking about the first? Aseris Adibros, just as the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, God spoke directly, it came directly from the Almighty, so too everything, this Parsha that's filled with a litany of mitzvos, they too come from Sinai. Ah, you didn't hear them all. The next 633, you gotta take God, you gotta take Moshe's word for it. Only, you heard 10, and even out of the 10, you didn't hear them all from Hashem, only the first two. But still, just as those were from Sinai, they were a moment of great revelation. There's no doubt that they come from the Hashem. So too, everything in our Parsha comes from Hashem. And then Rashi tells us, secondly, another limud, Lama Nismach HaParsha's din on the Parsha's Mizbech, Lama Lecha Shetasim Sanadrin Eitel HaMikdash. Fine. This to me is one of the most important Rashi's in the whole Torah. And why is it one of the most important Rashi's in the whole Torah? Because what it's telling us is the following. That the devil, in this case not the devil, I guess the angel, is in the details. Parshish Yisro has the seminal event, the greatest moment of revelation that changed the course of history and that fulfilled the very purpose and meaning of this world, the Torah HaKadosha, the sacred Torah, the blueprint for creation that God gave us. Access and insight to His diary. And our Sinai was all about the Shloshosh Yimei Hagbalah, the three behaviors we did in order to anticipate and to get ready and to prepare, to elevate ourselves and to transcend that which brings us down. And then we stood at Sinai, that moment of great revelation. We saw the sounds. That's last week's parsha. 
We saw the sounds. There's a name when a person's senses get confused. Synesthesia, I think it's called. There's a, a diagnosis when one's senses are confused. Is that what happened to the Jewish people at Ar Sinai? So we've learned in the past, no, it's even more than that. The Ibn Ezra says, you know, it's like a hologram. The words were displayed in the air. If you think Disney today is impressive, it had nothing on Har Sinai. Har Sinai, the words that Hashem was saying in a hologram were displayed in the air. But even more than that, means that when we heard the words, we can picture them being lived. It was so vivid. The portrayal of a value system was so rich and so meaningful that we can picture it for ourselves, our children, our grandchildren. We saw what it means to live a Torah observant Jewish life. Har Sinai was the pinnacle of spirituality. However you define that word spirituality. So what would you think would come next? What comes after Har Sinai? Spirituality, thunder and lightning, the light and sound show, seeing the vivid portrayal, this magnificent, transcendent, transformative experience. Jewish people were united in an unprecedented way. Ever since then, we've been trying to claw back to that sense of unity. And what would come next? I'll tell you what I would never think would come next. Civil law, tort law, criminal law, the laws of damages, the laws of lending, the laws of borrowing, the laws of, of servitude, the laws of... I would not think that you'd open up this dry and this law book. Civil, criminal, tort law. This is the essence of Judaism. That spirituality is not... Spirituality also is in meditation, in music, in art, in an incredible, magnificent view, in science. Spirituality comes in all kinds of forms. It touches people in all kinds of ways. But the ultimate spirituality is living a halachic life. Spirituality is found in the mundane. An ethical, moral, honest life of integrity. In interpersonal relationships. Paying our workers on time. Offering a loan to the needy. Somebody who's crumbling under the weight of their burden. Helping them stand up. Their animals stand up. All these laws. These aren't Come on, leave me alone. I'm, I'm trying to engage in spirituality. I'm trying to meditate. What are you making me focus on that? That is the expression of spirituality. And like I say, to me, that vav, the realization, the fulfillment of the blueprint for life is of course in all these other ways in which we can feel spiritually moved, but never at the expense of, never in lieu of the details. The minutia, the halacha, the guidelines that that regulate an honest and a meaningful life of integrity interpersonally is what Parshas Mishpatim. So, in some ways, Mishpatim is really anticlimactic after Yisrael. The Vav is telling us, no, it's not. It is exactly the continuation. Just as those came from Har Sinai, Mahari Shonen Misinai, just as you heard standing at the base of the mountain with light and sound and you were transformed and the Medrash tells us every illness was healed. The person with cataract could see and the person with the hearing aid could hear without it and the person with a limp could walk without a walker. And our Sinai, the, the, the environment, the condition was so perfect that it healed instantaneously all in attendance. 
It was the ultimate where the neshama was on fire and the goof, the body, was not held back. The body was not compromised. So just Mahari Shonen Misinai, just like that experience really captures what Sinai is about, so too Af Elu Misinai. Don't think when you get to the details of Mishpatim, eh, these are annoying, these are a distraction, these are dry, these are man-made, these are insignificant. No, this is the very expression guiding how we live our lives in the world. So flying through these very quickly, we have the law of a person who was sold into slavery in order to pay back a debt, the Evid Ivri. And if they want to stay, what they have to do, they pierce the ear. Why they pierce the ear, we've discussed this in the past as well. I'll leave it for you as a question this year. Why do we pierce the, pierce the ear of the person who after six years wants to remain with their master? Why? Because ma'oz and zu, this ear, shashamas arsinai, that heard at harsinai, those signals, don't steal. He went ahead and stole. Or, alternatively, this ear that heard avadaihem, that we are to be servants to God, velo avadim avadim, and not servants to God's servants, and yet they elect to stay and remain a servant to God's servants. So let me ask you a very simple question. If that's the reason why it's in the ear, because the very ear that heard at Harsinai, that's why we pierce the ear, not the eyebrow, not the nose, not the cheek, not wherever else people are piercing these days, the tongue. So why the ear? So let me ask you a very simple question. When did the person violate both of those principles? Either they stole or they agreed to serve man. When did that happen? Only now, after six years when they want to stay? That happened six years ago, when they first stole, when they were found guilty and the way that they wanted to make retribution was to sell themselves into slavery. So why don't they pierce their ear at the beginning of the process? Why do we only pierce their ear six years in when they choose to stay? Given the reasons that are provided, those reasons are more compelling earlier on. So why do we wait? I'll let you think about that question. Parsha then goes on and tells us the halachas of uh, killing of a slave, what happens with bodily injury. Ayin tachas ayin, shein tachas shein, yad tachas yad, regal tachas regal. Ayin tachas ayin. So the halacha, the Torah here is telling us what happens if you hurt somebody else. That you don't actually remove that limb, you pay them. The Rambam is a very interesting language. When the Rambam codifies this uh, halacha, the Rambam says... I'll read to you the language of the Rambam. He gives a testimony. The Rambam says, Hilchos Chovalomazik Perak Aleph Halacha Vav. The Rambam writes, Our fathers witnessed and ruled that an eye for an eye means money. What do you mean our rabbis witnessed and ruled not to take an eye for an eye literally, but it means you compensate the value of the loss of that eye? Why does the Rabbim say they witnessed and ruled? So Rabbi Salavechik says the added word witness lends a specific interpretation, a specific veracity. For most of the Pesukim in the Torah, one is allowed to pose posit various interpretations. Some were in consonance with the simple text and others less so. But in this case, if one interprets an eye for an eye literally, you're megalapanim batora, shalok halacha. You're revealing perspectives in Torah which contradict halacha. So there are certain verses in the Torah that after many generations have been uniformly interpreted in a specific way. And there's no other interpretation possible. So even though when it comes to the Mosbzukim, we have four levels of interpretation, Pardes, Pshat, Remez, Drash, Sod. But when it comes to this Pasuk, what the Rabbam is codifying by saying our fathers witnessed and ruled is that the words may say eye for eye, 
when you translate ayin tachas ayin, you don't translate it as eye for eye. But what it literally means is the value of an eye for the value of an eye. Some sukkim don't lend themselves to interpretation. Our Misora tells us that there's only one way. He gives a second example of the Rav. We all universally take the same Dalad Minim on Sukkot. Alulav, Hadassim, Aravos, and which citrus fruit do we take? An Esrog. Of course we take the Esrog, because the Pasuk says to take an Esrog, right? Wrong. Nowhere in the Torah does it use the word Esrog. Does it say to take an Esrog? What does it say? pre Hadar. Take a beautiful citrus fruit. How many species of citrus fruit are there? I don't have the faintest clue, but I'm sure many. More than one. Lemon, orange, grapefruit, and many, many, many others. The Rambam writes, the fact that Jews universally, in all times and in all places, all take the same fruit, is testimony to the power of the Torah Shabbat Peh, to the truth of the Torah Shabbat Peh, to the authenticity of the transmission of the Torah Shabbat Peh. So the Rav says that's a second example. Pasuk says, Priyetzadar. How do you translate the words Priyetzadar? Translate it for me in one word. Esrog. That's the translation of the words Priyetzadar. Certain verses don't lend themselves to interpretation, but through the generations, our rabbis transmitted what are the interpretations we're supposed to have. What happens if an animal gores another animal? Here we have the Avos Nezikin, a pit. You have an open pit, somebody falls in. Animal damaging property. Then we have... Laws of Shomrim, the four kinds of Shomrim, if you borrow, if you are paid to watch, if you watch for free, or if you rent, the four categories, and the liability that you have is proportional to what you put into that guardianship, to what you had to do. We have the laws of the helpless and abandoned, Kol Al-Manav Yasom Losa Anun, I mentioned every year, the Chizkuni points out, all of the mitzvahs in our parsha are balashem yachad, are given in the singular, with the exception of this. Don't aggravate a widow or orphan. And God says, if you do, I'm going to make your wife a widow and your children orphans, so that they'll understand. That's how harsh. It's pretty strong language for God. But God is communicating how harshly He will treat us if we are insensitive to those who are vulnerable. And this pasuk is not written in the singular, says the chizkuni is written in the plural. Why? Unlike all the other mitzvahs in our parsha, to tell us that a community is judged by how they treat the vulnerable. And that even if you are not the one who specifically aggravates the vulnerable, if you didn't intercede and step up, if you didn't protest, then you are accountable. Tonight in our Moments That Mattered, incredible uh, course that we've been doing this year, um, tonight we'll be talking about the history of the Soviet Jewry movement, which is really fascinating. It, it really deserves five years not one night for an hour, um, to cover it in depth. But it's really interesting. Because according to many historians, the groundswell, which really began grassroots of the Soviet Jewry movement, came from a sense of guilt, slash anger, slash a feeling of impotence from American Jewry inability to intercede during the Holocaust. And that they weren't going to do that again. And this provided the platform an opportunity to make a tikkun, to whatever degree a tikkun could be made, a repair to have a second chance and to do it differently. Or maybe not to do it differently, to do it more effectively. And to not be satisfied till a difference was made. And it was not agreed. How many people in this room went to Soviet Jewry protests? How many were December 6, 1987 in Washington? 
right? An enormous amount. Now, it wasn't agreed by everybody. It was not agreed by everybody that demonstrations were the right way to go. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. The Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Taitz, and others were opposed. Many were for. The who's who of the Jewish leadership of today, in terms of the people we think of, of activism and so on, all got their start as students or young people during the Soviet Jewry movement. Anyway, I don't want to give away the whole class. We'll talk about it tonight. It is a really a fascinating subject and a lot to learn from, even, even to today. But people watched the population, our brothers and sisters under the Iron Curtain, and said, we're not going to sit idly by while they suffer. That's Almana kol almana v'yasom lo sa'anun. Chizkuni says, it's not enough. Now, we weren't the Soviets. We weren't the ones who were who persecuting them. But the Chizkuni says, it's not enough to not persecute. If you fail to intercede, you too are liable. And that's why it's written in the plural Lashon Rabbim, and the entire community is judged in that fashion. We have the laws of lending money. We have the laws of how we treat leadership, not to curse them out. The laws of Acher Rab Lahatos, how we uh, come to conclusions, we follow the majority, the judicial process, Shemitah, and the Parsha then has the uh, Shalash Regalim, and then we get to the end of the Parsha, which is what we're going to study together right now, of Nasa Venishma. Okay. So let's go. We're on Perak, Chaftalad Pasuk Aleph, chapter 24, verse 1, page 440 in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash. Okay. Moshe is told to go up to Hashem, the Zakanim, and that they should bow down from a distance. Everyone else was obligated to stop from a distance. Only Moshe had a license. Only Moshe was invited to continue forward, but the others could not approach the bench. And the nation. So you have the nation in the distance. You have Aaron, Nadav, and Avio, and the Shivan Zikna Yisrael a little bit closer, but going all the way is Moshe. Moshe approaches, he tells the people all that God had said, and the laws, the people answer with one voice, and they say, we're in, naseh, we will do. Moshe wrote all of the word of God, he woke up in the morning, and he built a mizbech at the foot of the mountain, and there were 12 pillars corresponding with the 12 tribes. He then sent the young people. Who are the young people? Ntsiyaswai, Bnei Akiva, Benos, Aguda, whatever group it was, all the groups, all the above. And he then sent, who are the young people? We'll get to this. And they offered Olos. So what happened? They bring this, they bring this uh, sacrifice. And Moshe now gathers the blood. That's normal. Sacrifices require four stages in the process. And they include gathering blood as one of them. But what happens next is really unusual. And thank God, did not happen often. Moshe took half the blood, he put it in basins, and half the blood he put on the altar. And then he took the Book of the Covenant. What's in this Book of the Covenant? What book? Hertz? 
art scroll, Koran. He took the book and he read it in the ears of the people. And now they respond again. And this time they don't just say Nase. Now they respond to it and say. Everyone assumes this phrase is in last week's parsha. Nase Venishma was at Matan Torah. But Nasa Venish was not last week's Pasha, it's this week's Pasha. Vaikach Moshe is Adam, he took the blood, and what does he do with the other half of the blood? Vaizrok al Ha'am, he throws it on the people. This consecrates the covenant with God, sealed with you concerning all these matters. Moshe rejoins them, and they go up, and they see an image of God. Right? So this is still part of. We'll have to see momentarily, chronologically, where this fits in. They see some image of God. And what do they see in this image of God? Under his feet, they saw like brickwork of a, of a precious stone. And it was like the essence of heaven. That's how pure Latohar. Against the great men of the Jewish people, God did not stretch out his hand. They saw God. And what did they do? What do Jews do? They ate and they drank. They had a moment of great divine revelation. They saw God. They felt spirituality. You had a good Rosh Hashanah davening. Go home and have lunch. You finished the Masechet of Gemara. You learned well. What do you do? Barbecue. You make a siyam. Some Chinese food. Of course, that, this is the makor for, and I'm saying this only half-jokingly, but the makor for the fact that we concretize a spiritual experience by, by eating. By eating. Okay. What's going on in this section? Now, of course, the first question that begs itself about this section is, when did this happen? When is this whole approaching the mountain, Moshe goes further, the others stay behind, Moshe gets something from God, he comes back, gives it to the people, they answer Nasa Vinishma, then Aaron, Nadav, Aviyu, the Zakanim, see this incredible image. When, when was all this happening? When did it all happen? So Rashi tells us, Parsha Zunem, Rakodim Aser Sadibros, Vedalad Besivan, Neem Rulo Alei, Ein Muktamum Uchar Batora. This is the classic debate. Is the Torah written chronologically? Is the Torah written thematically? Is it in order? Rashi says the Torah is written in order. So when did this happen? I'm sorry, is it written out of order? It's written thematically. So when did this event actually occur? Before our Sinai. God calls them, this experience, and so on. That's the opinion of Rashi. The Ramban disagrees. The Ramban disagrees. He quotes Rashi. And all of them, unfortunately, disagree. If you look at the Orachayim, he summarizes it. I'm just going quickly, because we don't have that much time. The Orachayim says, El Moshe If you're just looking at the text, where does this section appear? After the giving of the Torah. And I'm not going to give you all the compelling evidence that supports this. Everyone was complete in this opinion. The Ibn Ezra, the Rashbam, the Ramban, the Orachayim. He says, it appears here because it happened here. It happened after Har Sinai that they concretized, they memorialized the covenant that was just entered into through this episode of the sprinkling of the blood, through the recommitment and affirmation of Naasev and Nishma, this image, this vision, and then they drank. All this happened, says the Orachayim, after Har Sinai, not before. But Rashi insists that 
All of this was before Har Sinai. In the Rav Chumash, Rabbi Salavitchik points out, the Gemara and Krisus suggest that the laws of Jewish conversion are derived from this narrative. So the laws that we have of conversion of Kabbalah, of mitzvos, mila, tefillah, that you have to have a bris, that you have to go into the mikvah, that you have to accept the Torah, come from this section. Moshe converted the Jewish people at Sinai. Even though they were children of Avram, they all required conversion. Because whenever new mitzvahs are introduced, the higher level of sanctity of the Jew who accepted them obligates a new conversion. So we've shared about this before too. There's a terrible misconception, which is that Avraham was Jewish. The Mishnah Lamelech in his parashat Jerachim writes, Avraham is the first Ivri. He's the father of our people. Certainly we derive our value of ethical monotheism, of kindness, Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. But by definition, they couldn't be Jewish. Because what does it mean to be Jewish? Kedushas Yisrael, the sanctity of a Jew, stems from what? Being obligated in mitzvos. So Kodama and Torah, before Harsina, you couldn't be a Jew. You could be a Hebrew, but you couldn't be a Jew. Being a Jew is only after Harsina. So we, the nation of Hebrews, became a nation of Jews. And how did we become that nation? How did that transition, transformation happen? Through how it always happens, which is conversion. We converted. Lest anyone, I mean the Torah goes out of its way many, many, many times to say that one is not allowed to mistreat or have prejudice to a convert, God forbid, but lest anyone still be inclined to have prejudice to a convert, know that you're a convert. Right? If you're going to accurately, when the shul membership application says, is there any conversion in your family, really every single member should be checking off, yes. When? My ancestors at Harsinai. They converted. So... I'm going to throw Matthew and Hami into a tailspin. I don't mean that literally. But really, we are all converts. We all converted at Harsinai. And every subsequent time more mitzvahs were added, a new conversion needs to take place because the Kedushas Yisrael was expanded. The sanctity of what it means to be Jewish was enlarged. So the Rav writes, therefore, as the entire Torah was accepted at Harsinai, they had to undergo conversion. The Ramban indicates that the Jews had undergone an earlier conversion in Egypt. The circumcision and immersion happened there because they had just received the obligation of bringing the Korban Pesach. You can't bring the Korban Pesach. If you're an Aral, you needed a bris and you needed to be Jewish. But because the remainder of Torah was revealed here at Sinai, a second conversion was needed. And this explanation dovetails with Rashi's chronology of the events. He argues that the narrative here took place in the 4th of Sivan, while the Torah was given in the 6th. Therefore, the Israelites had undergone the requisite conversion prior. According to the Ramban, it took place after Revelation. So it was a conversion that happened as a result of having the greater obligation. So he, the Rabbi Salavitchik says the debate between Rashi and the Ramban, did the section happen before or after Matan Torah, is really a debate. The new conversion, did that come in anticipation of being obligated in more mitzvos? Or did it come as a result, the consequence of having a greater obligation in, in more mitzvos? Now, the truth is, not only did all of our ancestors convert, even if you're born Jewish, there's conversion in your family because we all converted to Sinai, but there's a very beautiful tradition, and it's actually in today's daf. Those who learn the daf Yomi, in the second parak of Avodah Zarah, it talks about, the Gemara makes somewhat of a disparaging distinction between a Jew and a non-Jew in terms of uh, moral proclivity or immoral proclivity, licentiousness and promiscuity, which says human beings have an innate sense of, of uh, 
of licentiousness and therefore untrustworthy. Ah, what about Jews? So the Gemara says, no, Jews stood in Harsinai when we received the Torah, it cleansed us of the Zuama, it erased from us the impact that the Nachash had left on Chava. When the snake who had his eyes on Chava got Chava to eat from the Eitzadas, the snake imbued within humankind this magnetic pull towards often corrupt or immoral behavior. I, why does the Jew therefore not have the assumption of guilt? Because when we stood at Harsinai, he cleansed, cleansed us of it. He cleansed us of it. Comes along Tosos in the bottom line of today's daf and says, so what about the ger? What about the convert? Does the convert have an inclination towards immorality or towards morality? Is the convert continuing to be infected and affected by the Nachash? Or is the convert like the Jew that Torah was able to purify? So Tosa says an incredible comment. Tosa says, the convert also was at Harsinai. The convert physically wasn't there, genetically wasn't there, but the Lashon of Tosa says, the mazel of the convert was there. And that is the source of our tradition that a convert who converts in 2018, Tav Ches, was at Harsinai too. That's why the Torah says, don't remind them they're a convert. Don't discriminate against them because they're a convert. First of all, we're all converts. But second of all, they were at Harsinai just like you were. And I forgot where I just saw this recently, but this is supported too in the Talmudic statement. The Gemara says, That when a non-Jew converts, it's as if they're born anew. So much so that halachically, technically, they can marry the sister. They have no familial connection to their family because they're born anew to the extent that they're not related even to the people genetically they're connected with. So I forgot where I saw this, but it said, points out the following. It does not say, Goy shen a non-Jew who converts. What does it say? Ger shen Why? Because like Artosos. Because that ger was already destined to convert since Harsinai. Ger, the would-be convert, shen who finally converted Meaning, even when that non-Jew was born, they didn't know that their lot, their fate, was to convert and join the Jewish people. But really, since before they're born, since Har Sinai, their soul, their mazel, was at Har Sinai. They were destined to come and join the Jewish people. I know, very tragically, sometimes in Shiduchim, there are families who discriminate, who don't want. It, it's a great schus to have your progeny marry a ger somebody who's chosen to join our people, who equally was at Harsinai, when we all come from Gerim, God forbid, is not something that should be discriminated against, but something that should be, something that should be pursued. Okay, continuing. Moshe took this book. What book did he take? And he read it in their ears. What book did he take exactly? Vayvo Moshe Vaisapir Lam Rashi says, Bo Bayom on the day, it's called the Reh Hashem, Mitzvah's Prisha Bahagbala. Again, Rashi's of the opinion that the section is appearing before the giving of the Torah. So now he's reading into the text what we already knew about what happens before the giving of the Torah, namely, that men had, and why women had to separate from one another in anticipation, in purifying themselves. Veskola mishpatim. What are the mishpatim that Moshe told them? Says Rashi, Sheva mitzvah b'nei Noah. Moshe told them the seven Noahide laws. Vishabbos v'kibar ha've'em upara aduma. And they had received other laws at Marah. These additional laws. Vayechtov Moshe and Moshe wrote. I'm on Pasuk Dalad now. What did Moshe write? Vayechtov Moshe. What did he write? Rashi says, Mi Torah. 
So everything that had happened already, God dictated to Moshe how he wanted it recorded. And Sefer Bereshus was done. And Shemos Vayera Bo B'Shalach Yisro were done. And so Moshe recorded them the way we have them in the Torah now. He already took God dict- his dictation from God on those sections. And, uh, and that's what was in the book. And then he threw in also the other mitzvahs that we got at Mara, namely Shabbos Kibbutz and Para Aduma. And he read this to the people. And how did they answer? Nasa. They listened with one voice, they answered with one voice. What does it mean, Vaya'an Kol Ha'am? What should it say? Not Vaya'an, but should say Vaya'anu Kol Ha'am in the plural. So the Ibn Ezra points out. This is a continuation of the theme that we know. What does Rashi say there? Why doesn't it say Vayachanu in the plural? Because they were so united, they were as one, they were one entity. So just like Vayichan Sham Yisrael, the Ibn Ezra says, Vayan Kolam, not Vayanu, Ki'iluhu Ish Echad. This is one entity, one unified people. That's who we were. In fact, that's why. What does Moshe do? Then he writes, he wakes up in the morning, he makes a mizbeach, and he puts 12 pillars. Why 12 pillars? The Rashbam writes, that everyone present wanted this. They were united, not only in their interpersonal devotion to one another, they were united by a shared sense of mission, a shared sense of fate, and a shared sense of destiny. All of the above. Rabbi Soloveitchik writes about the fact that Moshe read this in their ear, very powerful image. When we delve into the Pasuk, we stumble upon a new fundamental idea in relation to the written law. The central activity for the conversion of the congregation of Israel involved reading aloud. The hearing of the people that they heard, emphasizes hearing as opposed to study that takes hold in the heart and in the mind. Right here, the Pasuk specifically emphasized not studying or learning happens in your heart or your mind. Here it says, Moshe should read it where? In your ear. Based on this concept, we can assert that the public reading of the Torah represents a mitzvah independent of understanding. There is a fulfillment of reading aloud, even though the reader or the listener does not understand what is being read. What is the point of a reading that lacks understanding? Through the mere reading of Torah Shebechsav, the soul is uplifted. The sanctification of the individual and his spiritual elevation does not require learning. Even a superficial reading can perform this function. The fact that after this reading, the reader is not any wiser does not negate its value. So the Rav says, and he elaborated this much more in one of the Yeritzite drushes, but the Rav says that this notion that Moshe took the Sefer Abris and Vayikra Ba'azneha'am, he read it to the people. Our experience of Kriya Satorah, when we listen to the Torah being read, Rabbi Salavechik developed the notion that it is a recreation of Harsinai. Where do we read the Torah from? The Bima. And what do you notice about the Bima? It's, it's elevated. By the way, in contrast to where the Shliach Tzibur Davids, it's not ideally laid out in the shul, at least right now, um, but really the Shliach Tzibur is supposed to daven from the front of the room, not the middle of the room, and the Shliach Tzibur is supposed to daven from lower, based on what? The Pasuk that says, Mimamakim Krasicha Hashem. I call out to you, God, from where? From the depths. If you go to the Ramah Shul, the Shul of Ramosha Isilis in Krakow, on our June trip to Poland this past June, we saw it, where the Shliach Tzibur stands in the Ramah Shul in Krakow is a step down. It is a foot below. Why? Because the Shliach Tzibur is Yoreg Lefnei 
the Lashon Chazal, whenever the Shliach Tzibur, it doesn't say he ascends the Amud, it actually says he descends the Amud. You descend to the Amud. Mimamakim Krasicha. You go down. So the Shliach Tzibur leads the Tefillah. Why? Because the one leading the Tzibur is supposed to come from a place of feeling incomplete, broken, desperate, dependent, and bring all that sentiment in their appealing to the Ribbono Shalom from the depths of their heart. How do you achieve the depths of your heart? By feeling that you're in the depths of the ground. That's true for the Shliach Tzibur, but when the Torah is read, where is the Torah read from? Not Mimamakim, not from down. Torah is read, read from... That's when you ascend the Bima. The Bima is elevated. So Rabbi said, why? Because Kriyas Torah is a reenactment of Matan Torah. And he develops as much more, the, the Gabai standing on either side, the Balkore and the reader all correspond with the people that we just read, who accompanied Moshe. He lays out the whole drama, that when we hear the Torah, we are to experience as if we're standing in our Sinai anew. Every Shabbos a full Parsha, and then of course the Takana was made. We can't go three days without water, we can't go three days without Torah, Monday, Thursday, Shabbos, God forbid you go three days without going back to our Sinai. A Jew needs to go back to Har Sinai at least every three days. If you, if you have a longer break than three days from Har Sinai, you're severed from the Har Sinai experience for more than three days, you're finished. You'll dry up. You'll dry out. Your battery will die. A Jew has to go back. And that's where am Read in the ears of the Jewish people. Not a reading that necessarily has comprehension. Not a learning, but rather... The experience of our right, and that's what he said. What's the point of listening to something you don't understand? And the answer is, it's an experience. What, what language is the opera in? Italian. Italian. Any people here go to the opera? Do you speak Italian? Where are you going to the opera if you don't understand the Italian? The experience. I don't. I've never been to the opera. I'm, I'm good. But why would you go to the opera if you don't understand Italian? There's something about the experience. You feel you were present for an experience. And that lahavdil is what the Rav interprets, Even if it's not in your head or your heart, you didn't comprehend, but the experience of going back to Harsinai is transformative. Have you ever sat in the presence of an incredible lecture, a brilliant scholar, a gadol, an adam gadol, tamachacham, you didn't really understand or you didn't understand 90%, but you got goosebumps anyway. And you walked away transformed by being in their presence and by hearing the depths, the breadth of what they were saying. That's why Yikrab Am Kriya Torah for us is the reenactment of, of Har Sinai. Okay, really one more point I want to make. Who are these Na'arei B'nai Yisrael, by the way? Rashi says they were the Bechoros, the firstborn. Why were the firstborn given a position of distinction? What did not yet happen? With the Chayta Egel, the firstborn lost their place of distinction. And who got it instead? The Levim, the Kohanim, the tribe of Levi. But this was beforehand. So the Bechor is still in the position of distinction. And that's why the Na'arei, Vaishlachas Na'arei B'nei Yisrael, Vayalu Olos, who are bringing the sacrifices, not the Levim yet. The Bukhor. Shlomo Zaman Arbach has an amazing Chiddush. He says, I don't want to scare you, Tainus Bukhoros, but uh, Pesach's coming up. So we know Erev Pesach, firstborn fast. Why did the firstborn fast in Erev Pesach? So many think it's because the firstborn were spared with the 10th Makkah. 
But if Shlomo Zalman says if that's the case, then women should also fast because they too were spared in the tenth makkah. That can't be the reason. And we don't fast for the fact that we were spared all the other makos. Why specifically would they fast for that? He gives an entirely different reason, a huge chiddush. He says erev Pesach. What happened on erev Pesach in the Beis Hamikdash? It was the busiest day of the year. Chaburas and chaburas and chaburas of people, families and families and groups and groups were not packing to go to their hotel. They were bringing their korban in the Beis Hamikdash. It's a miracle that they all got it in on Erev Pesach, after Chatzos, in a timely fashion, so on and so forth. So the, the Leviim were working overtime on Erev Pesach. Which day of the year of all days would those who should have had that position feel guilty, feel bad, feel they need to do tshuva? Erev Pesach. Says Rosh Shlomo Zalman Arbach, Tainus Bechoros is not the result of Makas Bechoros, it's because it's on Erev Pesach that the Bechor says, that should have been me. I should have had center stage bringing the Karbonos to Karbon Pesach. I should have been interacting with every Jew from around the world coming to Yerushalayim. And I, my ancestor made a mistake with Chayta Egel and it was taken from me and given to Leviim and that's why the Bechor fasts on Erev Pesach, says of Shlomo Zaman. So why, is, why are the Bechor called a Na'ar? We use the term Na'ar in a disparaging way. Na'arishkeit. Stop being a Na'ar. Why are the Bechor, why are the firstborn called a Na'ar? Mr. Ramban has a reason. And I don't have time to tell it to you. But you should look at the Ramban. And I'll tell you, look at the Ramban. And for those that came to the afternoon kolo yesterday, or who listen online, it connects to what we spoke about yesterday. We're obligated to give kavod to an older person. And we paskin even a zakin ashmai, even an older person who lacks chachma. Just an old person who happens to not know anything, but the longevity of their life is worthy of honor. Why? Because we assume that longevity comes with wisdom. There's a life wisdom that you get just from being alive. So, anyway, the Ramban, that which we said yesterday, the Ramban connects that why the Bechor is called a Na'ar, is called young, because their place of distinction has nothing to do with knowledge. It is only to do with their birth order. So when you have a place of distinction only because of your birth order, not because of knowledge or because of having lived a long life, you're Na'ar. You're young in your knowledge. You're undeveloped in your knowledge. The Ramban, I guess I just told it to you. The Ramban says it uh, very beautifully. Okay, the blood is taken and it's sprinkled all over us. The people say, Nasa Vinishma. I was going to tell you an incredible insight of the Nasiva Shalom, the Slanam Rebbe, but I don't have time. But I want to tell you one more thing that the Rav says. The Rav developed a very famous idea of the difference between fate and destiny. Yud Vigoral. So the Rav writes here on this Pasuk. We have this blood, half of it went on the Mizbeach, half of it was sprinkled on the people. They memorialized, they concretized the covenant. Says Rabbi Salavetri, the Torah relates that God made two covenants with the Jewish people. This is so, so important. The first covenant he made was in Egypt. I will take you to me as a people and I will be a God to you. The second covenant was here at Harsinai. The covenant in Egypt was a covenant of fate. Well, the covenant at Sinai was a covenant of destiny. What is the nature of a covenant of fate? Fate in the life of a people, as in the life of an individual, signifies an existence of compulsion. A strange necessity binds the particulars into one whole. Against his will, the individual is subjected and subjugated to the national fate-laden reality. He cannot evade this reality and become assimilated into some other different reality. The environment spits out the Jew who flees from the presence of the Lord. He is bestirred from his slumber in the same manner as the prophet Yonah. This sense of a fate-laden existence of necessity gives rise to the historical loneliness of the Jew. 
Jewish loneliness is a part of the framework of the covenant of faith that was made in Egypt. Even if a person achieves the pinnacle of social or political success, he will still not be able to free himself from the chains of isolation. What is the nature of the covenant of destiny? Destiny in the life of a people as in the life of an individual signifies a deliberate and conscious existence that the people has chosen out of its own free will and in which it finds the full realization of its historical being. Let me tell this to you outside. God made two covenants. There are two brisos that He made with us. One was in Egypt and the second one now is at Har Sinai. There's bris Mitzrayim and there's bris Sinai. What's the difference between the two? This bris Mitzrayim is, I don't want to say a religious. God forbid. But Bris Misraim has to do with our nationalistic identity. The fact that we are a people bound with a history and bound with a fate. We have a fate called the Inquisition and a fate called the Crusades and a fate called the Holocaust and a fate called the founding of the State of Israel. We have a shared fate that binds us. Whether we wear the same kind of yarmulke, whether we observe Shabbos or don't observe Shabbos, whether we vote for the same party, there's a bris Mitzrayim. God took us out of Egypt and formed us into a nation, a bond of a family, of a unit, who shares the same history and shares the same fate. Fate, like the word fatalistic, is something that we don't control. But we also are a people of destiny. And we have the bris Sinai. Destiny is our religious identity. Destiny is how we transform and repair the world. Destiny is how we take Torah and mitzvahs and halacha. How we take a life striving of Kedusha. How we take Yira Shamayim. How we're Mamlech Hashem. How we're Marbek Vod Shamayim. How we make a Kiddush Hashem. Destiny is the way with which we interact with the world. And that results from the Bris Sinai. And this is a very, very important distinction because you know, we share both covenants with all Jews in the sense that we're bound by saying both covenants. But sometimes there are Jews who don't share the covenant of destiny with us the way we understand it. We, the Torah observant community, have an understanding, interpretation, a tradition of the Sora of the covenant of destiny, of bris Sinai, bound by halacha, bound by the authenticity of the Torah being divine. And there are, I won't say some Jews, but I'll tell you, the overwhelming majority of Jews don't share that bris Sinai the way we understand it. So do we dismiss them, disregard them? Do we have nothing to do with them? Do we have no connection with them? We still have a bris Mitzrayim. We still have a shared fate. We're still part of one people. And our connection does not depend to rely only on the bris Sinai. There's also a sense of a bris Mitzrayim. These two covenants are, are both um, critically important. They both have different structure to them. My brother has several essays on Gush Etzion, Har Etzion has a website called the Virtual Base Medrash. And my brother has a series of, uh, a curriculum of classes on this issue, Bris Sinai and Bris Mitzrayim. It's supposed to be put out in a book. What's happening, Mom? They're going into a book? I'll have to call him to find out. But he has a collection of essays and I highly, highly recommend them. Not just because they're my brother, but they're excellent. Um, really on this very topic developed by Rabbi Soloveitchik from our Parsha. Bris Mitzrayim, Bris Sinai, we're bound by both of them, but even when we lack a feeling of connection of one, we always have that feeling with the other. I'm sorry I have to stop short today, but Mitzvah Shem will pick it up here next week.